Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. That, of course, was a clip from one of the best movies of all time, right? That was back when Pixar was family-friendly and they weren't trying to uh, indoctrinate and things like that. And, uh, and so anyway, if you've never seen Toy Story, then shame on you. You have an assignment. You should go watch it today uh, while it's raining outside. Uh, it's about toys, okay? If you didn't know, toys that belong to a little boy named Andy, and they come to life when nobody's watching. And the toys take this identity very seriously. If you, I should have written on the bottom of my shoe, but I didn't think about it until just now. They all have Andy written on the bottom of their feet. And uh, they just, they, they, that's who they are. They know who they are and they appreciate who they are. And when Andy's not watching and the other adults aren't watching, they come to life and pursue all kinds of antics. One day, though, a new toy is introduced, Buzz Lightyear. The only catch is that Buzz doesn't know he's a toy. He thinks he's very very real. And this clip that I just showed is when he finally realizes that, that he's not what he has thought he was. And as you can see, as he's laying there with his arm broken off after crashing and burning, it is a very humbling moment for him. He realizes that he really and truly cannot fly. All of the tricks that he has are really just buttons and little voice recordings. He's made in China, and he's covered by decals. But it's when he's finally humbled, he has a little bit of emotional breakdown after the fact. So if you keep watching, I mean, there's a, there's, there's a little bit of a breakdown that comes along. But he finally realizes that when he is finally humbled, he finally realizes that he has a place in this community of Andy's toys. He realizes that, that he's, he is important. He does belong, even though he's not who he thought he was. And one of the things we understand is that humility, humility goes a long way in any kind of community. It doesn't matter if you're talking about the Lions, clean, Lions Club or the football team or the workplace, we understand how important humility is. We all know that, that genuinely humble people are a delight to be around, not the people who say, you know what, I'm so humble. Because those aren't humble people. Those are people who have a feigned humility. But we know that truly humble people, people who don't walk around boasting about their humility, truly humble people are a delight to be around. And prideful people make any organization, whether it's the church or whether it's a civic organization, whether it's your workplace, it makes any organization or any sort of community less than pleasant. And of course, we understand this is particularly true within the church, as we continue to consider these mandates that are given to us in the New Testament, these one another statements that are given to us in the New Testament, last week we, we started talking about this whole idea with the most common one another statement of the New Testament, the command to love one another. And as Foster pointed out, that loving one another is foundational to everything else. It's foundational to our ability to be humble. But we also understand that these phrases can somewhat be categorized around other ideas and other moral characteristics and, and that sort of thing. And as you can probably tell today, I want to consider the significance of humility. 
And so as we do this, our jumping off point will be in Paul's letter to the church at Rome. So I hope you've got your place in the book of Romans. Today we'll be in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans. We'll be considering a majority of the chapter, but I won't read it all at this time. But we'll be in Romans chapter 12, and I would invite you, if you're able, to please stand with me as we read God's Word together. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another." Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these challenges that we will consider today from Paul's letter to the Romans. We understand that the application in our day-to-day lives is profound as we seek to be a people who humbly submit to you and truly submit one to another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Like most of Paul's letters, the, the first part of the book of Romans is is a rich theological exposition followed by very practical considerations. It's easy to read the first half of Romans and and kind of be lost at some of the things that you encounter there, some of the things that Paul has to say there. We get into into some, some really intense theological discussion. But he always follows his theology with practical application. So you might say that that one is 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 uh, more like um, kind of academic theology versus practical theology. And so we get into this idea of practical considerations. And you might insert a phrase here that says, because all this is true, here are some practical things that you need to do. Here are some practical things that you need to pay attention to. If you believe all of these things, then here is what your life should look like. Here are the characteristics of your life. And so you have what what we would consider here direct consequences. And since all of this is expressed in community, we understand that the direct consequences of the doctrine that's expressed in the first half really pertains to our relationship with one another, right? Right? And he gets right into this. And one of the ways that we see this idea of of humility brought to light here, one of the things we recognize here is that, is that we see humility through expressed in biblical church membership. In recent years, there's been a move away from the idea of church membership. And more and more, we see non-denominational churches that take a stance that they don't have church membership. And we understand that in this day and time that that may play well in this crowd that says we kind of reject the whole idea of organized religion But the reality is this, you can't have a church without members. You can't have a church that doesn't have church membership. You may play the semantic game of saying, oh, we don't practice church membership. But what you're really just saying is that we don't tell other churches that people have joined our church. I mean, that's really what it boils down to because you really can't have, you really can't have a church without without members. 
it's really even more than just a, a problem with, with semantics. Um, you, you, we have this experience today where there are also two equal and opposite errors even in churches that do have membership. You have some who attend church but who never join the church, but then you have others who've joined the church and never actually participate. And so we have this, this really this broad confusion when it gets into this idea of, of church membership. And of course, I'm not talking about those who were hindered due to their health or some other providential issue. I'm not talking about that at all. But most churches that are older than a few years have an incredibly bloated list of church members. And a lot of those folks, I dare say even a majority of those folks, haven't darkened the doors in years. And believe me, our church is absolutely no exception. Uh, we could bring the rolls out and almost like a Flintstone book of life sort of thing. And, and, and we'd be disappointed, honestly, if we started reading names off the list of those who have not darkened the doors of our church or perhaps even any church in years, sometimes even more than just a few years. And so what we have here is that Paul is making an argument that is very contrary to our current pattern. And he is making an argument that, of course, is the biblical argument, but it doesn't line up with what we practice and what we see happening in our own day and time. Whenever the New Testament letters, Romans is no exception, whenever the New Testament letters are talking about being a member of the body, we need to understand that they're first not talking about membership within the whole body, like I am part of the capital C church, like the church in foreign countries, the church in, in times past, like I am a believer, I am part of the larger community that will be represented in heaven, but my faith is expressed on a weekly and daily basis, not in the universal church, but my faith is expressed regularly in this community because this is the community that I've identified with as a, as a member. As the case is for many of the people in the room this morning, this is the community of faith that you've united with where you choose for your faith to be expressed. And we would encourage that if you left this place, that you would go somewhere else and unite with a local community where your faith is expressed on a regular basis. And this is how this is understood in the New Testament. When Paul writes a letter to the church at Rome, he is talking about the church first and foremost, in Rome. And so these, these ideas about body is first and foremost expressed not in the big C church, but in the little C church in individual local communities. And so each letter has a specific audience in mind. Romans was written to the church at Rome. Now in God's grace, it's been given to us but when we read the letters to the church, to the letter to the church at Rome, we understand that it was first and foremost written to a specific community in a specific place. And by God's grace, he's made it available to us. So Paul gets into this idea of, of membership in the body of Christ, specifically in the body of the church of Rome, and he really gets to some important things for us to consider when it comes to biblical church membership. He says in verse 3, and this is so important, that when we talk about membership in the local body, no one should think of himself more highly than he ought to think. This is a tremendously equalizing, a tremendously humbling command. We've talked a lot about this, that the church body really is a miracle. 
especially in a culture that prizes affinity so much. I mean, our culture is one where, where you are united outside of the church by things that you, you share common interests in. You're united by this civic club or you're united by this hobby. Our non-church relationships are so often marked by our affinities, the shared experiences that we have. But the church, in God's infinite wisdom, pulls people together from all walks of life. And in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a place where your economics should not matter. It should not matter what your annual salary is when it comes to your belonging in the body of Christ. This should be a place where the color of your skin doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you are black or less than black. It doesn't matter the race that you come from because that's not how we define one another. It's a place where your profession shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter what you do for a living or, or how you earn your income, as long as it's legal. I mean, if you're breaking the law, we probably need to have a conversation there. But in the same pattern of thought, understanding that your economics don't matter, your race don't matter, understanding those things, that also means that there's no room for any kind of superiority or inferiority complexes. Just consider this. The person who has a ton of education, lots of initials after their name, lots of certificates on the wall, that person is on equal footing when they're serving next to someone who barely finished high school and has been working at a manufacturing job his whole life. They're on equal footing when it comes to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, working in the baby nursery back there, it doesn't matter how many certificates you got on the wall. Can you change a diaper or not? Right? Can you hold a bottle or not? Can you, can you hold that kid that's crying or not? It doesn't matter if you've got a, a, a PhD, an MD, an MDiv. It doesn't matter what you got as long as you can do that task. When you're serving a homeless population a meal, it, we frankly don't care how many degrees you've got. What matters is can you love that person who's really hard to love? That's what really and truly matters. So again, you may know different things. You've had different experiences. But in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, no one is better than anybody else. No one is, is, is better than anybody else in the church. And this is, what the, this is the heartbeat of what Paul is saying here. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. You know, there's always been this human tendency to grade ourselves against the standard that someone else sets, right? Oh, I'm smarter than they are. I'm more talented than they are. My marriage is better than their marriage. But when it comes to the Lord, we're all on that equal footing. We're all in that equal place. We're all sinners who either need to be saved or sinners who, who have been saved. I mean, that's, that's it. That's the only category. And, you know, we can be creative and say there's sheep and there's goats, but that's the category that we see in, in Scripture. There's, there's people who have been and people who have not been saved. And if you approach the church of the Lord Jesus Christ with anything that approaches a superiority complex or, for that matter, an inferiority complex, then you need to find the humility that Paul is affirming here. Secondly, when we talk about this idea of biblical church membership, there should be a deep and abiding partnership between us. Verse five, Paul says that we are individually members one of another. So this means that there should be a partnership, a, a deep abiding partnership that exists within the body of Christ. Romans 12 leans into the body of Christ analogy that, that Paul uses in other places, and the principle is the same. There are no useless parts. But more than that, we understand the emphasis of the interconnectedness of the body. Um, my pinky toe, 
I feel like it's a pretty insignificant part of my body. I feel like that as I stand here, that if it were to just like suddenly disappear, that I don't know that, that I would notice immediately, as long as we no, no pain were involved. You know, if my pinky toe just disappeared, I don't know that I'd miss it. But it's amazing that such an inconsequential part of my body that if I get up from my bed in the middle of the night and my pinky toe makes a forceful impact with my bedpost, how critically important that unimportant part of my body becomes. And I'm a big baby. I can promise you that if I cracked my pinky toe on my bedpost, I'd wake up the house in wailing and in terror at the pain and agony that I've been subjected to. But that's an inconsequential part of my body except for when it's not. When it's not inconsequential, it really does matter. And we understand that even though it seems small and inconsequential, it has a purpose and it has a role. When we're thinking about the membership of the body of Christ, membership of the church, this is so important. It's more than just a social club. It's more than just the the weekly get-together that we have where we find out what you've been doing this week or what you've been doing this week, where we, you know, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. It's more than that just casual, you know, small talk. This is more important than that. This is a gospel partnership that is shared among the members. And just like my body parts are in agreement, they are not in disagreement right now. They all function for the good of the whole. So too do the individual members of the body agree that we function together for the good of the whole. And we understand that even in our own community, particularly in our own community, in the buckle of the Bible belt here, there are hundreds if not thousands of people who live in our community who can tell you that they are church members but have not been a part of a church in years. And that's just not biblical. There is no biblical place for that. It doesn't fit into the plan that God has put out for the church. And thirdly, we understand that the members of the body function according to the gifts that they've been given. Paul spends a great deal of time in these verses, in verses six through eight, talking about the gifts that that exist within the body of Christ. And just because there's equality of value and worth within, within the body, it doesn't mean that there's equality of giftedness. It doesn't mean that everybody can do all the same things. God is diversified in how he has distributed gifts. Not everybody can do the same stuff. For one, it just isn't practical. If all 200 of y'all could preach, Sunday morning we're all going to preach during church time. We wouldn't be out of here until the time for next Sunday, right? Because some some folks will be longer winded than others, right? Because they got a little bit more of that gift. Not everybody can do the same stuff. It's not practical. It's also not biblical. And so Paul gives us a list. It's not an exhaustive list. He includes things like prophecy. You say, Pastor, what's prophecy? We don't really use that much anymore. Why? Because God has told us what we need to know. He's given us his word. He's told us everything that we need, so we don't have to have prophets anymore to give us what God has to say. If someone claims to have a prophecy, though, guess what? We don't just take it and say, oh, man, that's a good prophecy. We open the scripture and say, does what that person says align with what God has said? If it doesn't, you know what you call that person? False prophet. And then you get to kick him out because he's a false prophet. That's a, that's, a, that's a good day. Pray he comes to Christ, Right? So he talks about service. Man, acts of service are all over the place. Some of y'all are are really gifted in acts of service, and you're looking for opportunities to to plug in. You'll see people. How do you know somebody's got the gift of the acts of service? They walk past a piece of trash in the parking lot, and they bend over and pick it up. Uh, That's a real simple way to say, oh, that person's got the gift of service, because they see a piece of trash and pick it up. 
We see teaching. We understand what teaching is. We've got some great teachers in our church who teach Sunday school classes, discipleship groups, and things like that. Exhortation. Some of y'all are really good encouragers. You're really good at that. You see somebody that looks like they're down and out, and you're there to be an encouragement to them. He talks about leading. Some folks are are natural leaders. They lead well. They lead from a position of, of, of faith. They lead with grace. Then there's folks who are merciful. And I don't have much mercy, but I'm grateful for people who do because you mercy people keep people like me in check, right? And if you've got mercy, if you're good at showing kindness to others, those are all kinds of gifts that Paul talks about here, but it's not an exhaustive list, Paul's point here is not to give us a list of all the different expressions of faith in the body of Christ, but what he is saying is that whatever your gift is, your gift should find its expression within the body of Christ. That's God's design. That's God's pattern. That's what God has given to us. And even if you have the more prominent gifts, things like leading and teaching, even though you may be more visible it doesn't mean you're any more important than the person who is a behind-the-scenes behind kind of gift, someone who's an encourager or someone who, who's a mercy shower. You don't often see people showing mercy publicly, right? It's not like we have people who need mercy just presenting themselves and, and we, have a, a, you know, we, we dispense mercy to them as they, as they come in. We don't do that. So you don't see those things expressed, but they're no less or more important than someone who's got to prepare a sermon and preach every single week. But this is what we understand to be biblical church membership. It's not that we come in and we get, get our goodies and then we leave for the week and maybe we come back and maybe we don't. The fact of the matter is that biblical church membership is an ongoing gospel partnership with other believers. We're united together in local congregations where we recognize that we should be actively working and using our gifts for the kingdom of God. What you don't see in this is that 80-20 rule where 80% of the stuff is done by 20% of the folks. You don't see that expressed in biblical church membership. Anything less than what we've talked about here is a shadow of what it could be and a shadow of what it should be. A second characteristic of humility, though, is, is shown by how we honor one another. Paul says in verse 10 that you should outdo one another in showing honor. I love that phrase. I'm convinced that if we could just apply those words to our lives, that our lives would be so much better from top to bottom. Your marriage would be so much better if you and your spouse would engage in a competition of honoring each other. I mean, you show me a husband and wife who are working actively to outdo one another in honoring each other, and you will show, I'll show you a marriage that is enviable to other people. I mean, what a great phrase Paul has given to us here that we should outdo one another in showing honor. Again, there's that one another. Now, if we link that back to the opening sentence in verse three, no one should think of himself more highly than he ought, then we see this ethic of humility given great depth. So again, internally, I, I shouldn't think of myself more highly than I ought. Externally, I should outdo each other in honoring each other. And so there are thought consequences that manifest themselves in real life consequences. Now, let's be honest. None of us struggle with the first part. None of us have issues thinking about ourselves, even if we're thinking about ourselves less than we should. None of us struggle there. But when it comes to honoring others, it's a little tougher, right? Again, no, no caveat here other than this is motivated by another one another, that we should love one another. 
Humility and love should create a climate where honoring each other is the standard. Well, here's the thing. How do you make a list of how to honor each other? How do we do that? How do we express that? Well, one of the ways we honor each other is when we serve one another. One of the ways we honor each other is when we forgive one another. Another way we honor each other is when we show deference to one another. These are all ways that we go about honoring the people that we're in this gospel partnership with. And again, you apply this in all of your interpersonal relationships, and they're going to be enhanced, right? I mean, in the marriage relationship, if you are honoring each other, if you're forgiving each other, if you're showing deference to each other, I mean, those are all things that we would look at and say, that's a, those are admirable places to be. I want to be in that relationship. I want to be in that, I want to be in that friendship. I want to be in that partnership. But this has beautiful consequences across the board because our relationships and interactions are based not just on mutual respect. It's not just, yeah, I respect them. I respect that person. But an active desire to one-up that person. Some of y'all are super competitive. This is a great way to be super competitive, to be competitive in honoring somebody else. This is a one-upsmanship But it's not based on envy or greed as one-upsmanship typically is. This is one-upsmanship that is based on love. Because I love you, I choose to honor you even better than you honor me. Which means if you don't honor me at all, I still get to honor you. You might make it easier for me. But I still get to honor you. Ultimately, this is kind of a restatement of the golden rule. What's the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, again, nobody says anything's wrong with the golden rule. Jesus gave us the golden rule, as a matter of fact. But what Paul here is, is he, he adds some depth to the golden rule. Because one of the things about the golden rule is that it is an ethic based on your own preferences. Think about that. The golden rule is an ethic based on your own preferences. Do unto others as you would like it to be done to you. And so we see that real simple application. Somebody holds the door for you. Well, why? Because I like it when somebody holds the door for me, right? Or somebody, there's a, an elderly person, there's a front row parking place, and there's a, I can get it or I can let an older person get it. Well, I'd love that front row parking place, but I'm going to use the golden rule and let that other person get that front row parking place, right? I mean, those are all expressions of the golden rule, but Paul here is, is asking us to take that one step further, and he's even asking us to pay closer attention to the other person. If y'all weren't here last week, you missed the story about my friend at the HOA meeting. I'm not gonna retell it. You have to go back and listen to last week. If you were here, you understand this analogy. In some strange way, my friend at the HOA meeting may have been following the golden rule. He tried to greet me with a holy kiss, and he may have wanted somebody to greet him with a holy kiss. I don't know, I can't judge his motives. But he may have wanted that done to him, so he may have been following the, old, the golden rule. However, he did not show honor <laughs> to me because he did not consider my thoughts. He did not consider what I wanted. He did not outdo me in showing honor. Humility requires, and this is so profound in our American context, that I have to consider all the other people in the room. And that goes against how we're programmed right? Because we're programmed to think that the most important person in the room is who? Me, right? We never say it that way, 
But that's what we're programmed. If, if the music's too loud or the lights are too bright or the temperature's too wrong, clearly it's affecting everybody. And it may just be you, as a matter of fact. And so if we need to hear anything this morning, we need to hear this. You are not the only person in the room. I am not the only person in the room. And there's 200 other people here that I should be working to outdo one another in honoring. The third aspect of humility that Paul considers here is this idea of living in harmony with one another. Again, this ought to be an outflow of the previous two points, but it needs to be stated. Humility means that I have to put forth some effort to see eye to eye with one another. In the original language, Paul is playing a, word, a little bit of a word game here. And again, we lose this in translation. Uh, in the ESV, you'll see the word harmony. Other translations say things like having the same mind. And again, these are, this is a, a, it's not an easy translation from Greek to English. And so we have to, we're, we're doing our best to figure out exactly what he's saying here. Uh, the next phrase he says there is, do not be haughty. The interesting thing is that haughty and harmony are the same word, identical words in the original language. The difference is that the word haughty is modified by a word that's kind of like a verbal multiplier. It's like saying, saying harmony is this, but being haughty is, is harmony times 10, okay? It's like saying that, that being haughty is, is kind of like hyperharmony, which means harmony is good, but hyperharmony means that we can only be in harmony as long as your opinion matches my opinion. And that's what being haughty is. Haughty means that I've got my opinion and it's right and all y'all just need to do what I say because my opinion is, is right. And that's what haughtiness is, okay? Here, Paul isn't talking about gospel matters. He's talking about secondary and tertiary issues. He's talking about things that boil down into the realm of opinion and conjecture. And that is not the harmony that Paul is pointing us to. One of the common ones we encounter today, particularly in our community, are, is Bible translations. Oh man, if you want to kick a hornet's nest, uh, let me find some King James only people and buddy, we can stir that pot quickly. Harmony means this. Harmony means that we agree that an accurate Bible translation is important. Amen? We all agree on that. No one in the room is going to say, yeah, I don't care if it's accurate or not. Nobody's going to say that. And if you do, you're not going to say it out loud because you know people are going to look at you funny. Okay? We agree that a proper Bible translation is one that should be intellectually honest. We agree that it is one that should handle the context and the nuances of the original language well. We agree that a Bible translation should be one you can understand, right? What good is it if, I mean, if we want to get accurate, we'll just pass out Greek New Testaments to everybody, and then everybody's going to be like, I can't read this, right? So we want one that you can understand. So we all agree on those things. I prefer the English Standard Version. 99.9% .9 of the time, I'm reading and preaching out of the English Standard Version. You may look at your Bible right now, and you may have the CSB, you may have the New American Standard, you may have the King James Version, and here's the beautiful thing is we don't have to agree on the version we prefer because we have in mind the thing that, which is important, that it's honest, that it's easy to read, that it's accurate. Those are the principles that we we stand on. We, we have the same mind when it comes to those principles. Now, if you come to me and say, Pastor, what's your opinion? I'll give it to you. And 
I'll ask some questions like, well, what are you looking for? What, what kind of, what are, you, what are you trying to gain out of it? If you want one that's, that's word for word accurate, then read the New American Standard. If you want one that's a little easier to chew on, one that's easier to understand, get the English Standard Version. If you're looking for something that's kind of a paraphrase that, that, that's, uh, you know, I'll tell you, get the New Living Translation. I mean, I'll, I'll give you options, but my opinion is that the ESV is what I prefer. It is a preference, and I acknowledge that. Haughtiness is when I take my opinion and turn it to fact and place an expectation that you had better agree with me or else. That's what haughtiness is. Again, I'm not talking about non-negotiables. I'm not talking about the resurrection or the virgin birth or the inerrancy of Scripture. I'm talking about the myriad of other things that come up daily that we don't have specific biblical prohibitions or specific biblical affirmations about. In those things, we recognize that there is room for disagreement. Baptist brethren, listen to me. But there is no room for being disagreeable. Notice the difference. We can disagree on all kinds of things, but we ought not be disagreeable with one another because why? We are striving to be in harmony with one another. Now, we have a worship team. We have a choir that's able to perform for special events and things like that. Foster, correct me if I'm wrong. Choir's not singing all the same notes, are they? So they're singing what we call harmony. And what, sopranos, altos, tenors, and bass, okay? So those are all four different parts that have different notes that are singing in harmony, but they are singing the same song, right? So they're not singing the same notes, but they are singing the same song. Harmony gives us permission to explore the notes within the boundaries of the song. Being haughty means that you better sing the same notes as me or you're not allowed to be in my choir. And the Bible tells us that we should be in harmony with one another. Man, it's beautiful. You get a good choir singing harmony or a good, good set of vocalists singing harmony. I listen, to, uh, listen to, to Mike Rowe's podcast, and Mike's in a barbershop quartet, and he, he'll, he'll sing with other guys and do this barbershop quartet thing, and it's, it's stunning to hear these guys singing in that, in that four-part harmony. They're not singing the same notes, but the song sounds incredible because they're able to explore the notes within the boundaries of the song. So when Scripture tells us to be in harmony with one another, that's allowing us to disagree on some things without being disagreeable because we're all singing the same song. I could easily keep going with this because I believe that what has happened in our day and time is we have seen so much of our current political climate creep into the church. And you know what I'm talking about with that that you had better agree with me or else. You had better, you'd better think like I think or else. You'd better have the same opinion about this or else. Man, about a lot of things we do, but there's a lot of things that we don't. And if you've seen anything, oh my goodness, you cannot define our current political situation with anything close to the word humility. There's nothing humble about it. There's nothing that is showing deference to others about it. There's nothing that's showing kindness to others about it. It is anything but humble, which means it doesn't belong in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke to this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but listen to how Mark puts it. In Mark chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus says it's like this out in the real world. It's like this out in the world where, where lost people live. It's like this out there where, where politics and all of that's happening. But then he goes on, he says, but it shall not be so among you. Why? Because whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then he talks about himself. The king of kings, the lord of lords, the creator of heaven and earth, the word of all creation. He speaks about himself in verse 45. For even the son of man, Jesus Christ, the king of kings, even the son of man came not to be served. You know, he had every right to be served. He had every right to tell his followers to bow at his feet and to serve him. I mean, Jesus, of all the people, Jesus could have sat back on the big couch and had somebody feeding grapes to him, right? Like that picture of that ancient king, that ancient ruler, of all the people, Jesus, Jesus deserved that. He deserved the honor. He deserved the worship. He deserved the adoration. He deserved myriads of people bowing at his feet. But even the Son of Man did not come to be served. And instead, what did he do? He served. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. And in so many things, Jesus set the example for us in how we should treat each other. Jesus sets the example for us for what it should look like in the body of Christ. And we understand that the best expression of the virtue of humility in the body of Christ is found in serving one another. So how do we serve each other? In humility. Well, the beautiful thing is, is the options are limited only by our imaginations. I mean, he didn't give us a list. Do these things. Do these things and you will have accomplished this. You'll check the box. He didn't give us that box to check. Instead, he tells us to serve each other, and then he leaves it open-ended. It's a blank check of service. Real simple ones. I mean, if we just stop thinking about ourselves and start thinking about one another, real simple ones, things like forgiving each other, things like praying for one another. How about simply being kind to each other? I mean, how, how far would that go today? Just showing kindness one to another. Uh, looking for someone who is lonely or brokenhearted and just needs a friend. Uh, you know, taking a, a, a widow or a widower and, and, and helping to, to mow their grass or, or fix their house. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, and it can be as cheap as nothing or as expensive as everything. It's limited only by what we can imagine. Again, the list could go on and on and on and on. Jesus served his disciples by washing their feet. I'm gonna tell you, if you come up and wanna wash my feet, we're gonna have a problem. Almost like that guy that tried to kiss me at the HOA meeting. I mean, we're not doing that. You're not gonna serve me well by washing my feet. I can take care of that on my own, right? Maybe one day, but not right now. Jesus modeled that by washing his feet. But he told his disciples, go and do likewise. And what he said is just go serve each other. Look for ways to serve. Look for ways to care. Look for ways to show the world what humility looks like in the body of Christ by following Jesus. And he tells us to go and do likewise. Ultimately, we need to understand this. Jesus has served you. Again, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And what's the number one way that he served us? By offering his life as a ransom for many. 
Jesus Christ served you and he served me when he died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. He did that which I could not do. He took the penalty that I was due so that I could have eternal life. He took my unrighteousness, replaced it with his righteousness through what he did on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He served me in a way that nobody else could and he served me in a way that I couldn't do for myself. And he's done that for you as well. For some of you in the room, right now you need to embrace the gift that he's extended to you, the way that he has served you, because you've not given your life to Jesus. You've not made the decision to follow Jesus. And today's a great day for you to make that decision, because just in the way that we want to serve you and that we want to be part of, of the body of Christ in serving each other, Jesus has served you as well, and he wants to be in a right relationship with you as well. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for thank you for how good it is. I thank you, Father, for how it speaks into our circumstances and situations. And I want to thank you, Lord, for how it challenges us in our relationships with each other. Lord, we understand in so many ways we, we mess this up. But God, in your providence and your wisdom, in the simplicity here, you have shown us how we can make our relationships with each other better. You have shown us how the body of Christ can be better. You've shown us how we can show a lost and dying world what it means to truly worship and serve Jesus. And so God, we pray that as we consider these things that we will not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, that we will look for opportunities to honor one another and that we would outdo one another in showing honor and that we would serve each other out of our giftedness. Lord, our desire is that we would see the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ grow in this community, and as it grows in this community, that it would grow to the ends of the earth. And so may we do our part here and now and in this place. Father, we pray for those in the room today who've not given their life to you, that you have served them, you have shown them what service is like by giving your life for them, for, for taking their place on the cross I pray that today that they would embrace the gift that's been extended to them, that they would choose to follow Jesus. God, again, we're grateful for your goodness, grateful for your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.